A reading from the book of Exodus, chapters 19 and 20. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning again. It is great to see you. Welcome again to Trinity Community Church. We're looking at the Ten Commandments this morning, and I was reminded of something that happened a few years ago, uh, and then I looked it up and I realized that it happened in 2006. So I've reached the stage where I say a few years ago and it turns out to be 16 years ago. But there was a, a Georgia congressman named Lynn Westmoreland who was crusading with a, a righteous cause. He was co-sponsoring a bill that required the display of the Ten Commandments in the House and the Senate. Mr. Westmoreland gained a lot of publicity for his stance that the God's ten, ten laws must be honored and, and respected and must have a, a shaping influence on the country. Some people ridiculed him, others praised him. 
Um, but Mr. Westmoreland, he was, was eager to, to promote this, uh, this cause of his, and he went on the Colbert Report, uh, which was a, uh, a political comedy show uh, on cable. And cable was this thing that used to, you used to use it to watch TV. Uh, and so he goes on this show, and Stephen Colbert, the host, is a, is a faithful Catholic, and they bantered for a few minutes. And then uh, Colbert asked uh, a question. Let me read the transcript. Colbert, so what are the Ten Commandments? Congressman, what are all of them? Colbert, yes. Congressman, you want me to name them all? Colbert, yes. Congressman, uh, um, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal. Um, I can't name them all. So needless to say, kind of an embarrassing moment for the congressman, and he was further you know, ridiculed in, in the press. And then, uh, you know, I think we can be honest that it, it is a little bit of an, uh, an act of hypocrisy to be, to be crusading with a, a righteous cause, to be building your own sort of platform and image on the Ten Commandments, if you can only name like two and a half of them, really. And so it was a difficult moment for him. He only had another, I think, 12 years in office after that. But here's what I, I find most noteworthy, that, that the Ten Commandments are, on the one hand, some of the most well-known, popular teaching in human history. I mean, everybody knows of the Ten Commandments, and yet at the same time, they are some of the, the least understood teachings in all of the Scriptures. The, the thing is not just that people can't name all ten. I don't think that's necessarily that big of a deal. The, the bigger issue is that people often don't understand what they're for in the first place. We don't understand how to relate to God's law in general. We don't understand how good God's law is for us, how it shapes us as individuals, as communities, and how it can, when rightly applied, have a shaping influence on society. And so I think if we take a deep dive into these 10 laws, we're going to see instead a cohesive and a compelling way of life. We're going to take the next two weeks to explore the, the big 10, as I like to call them, during March Madness. We're going to focus on the first four today, the, the worship commandments, and then we're going to look at the final six, which I uh, am praising the community commandments, next Sunday. But what we're doing today is we're going to look at the drama of the law, the pattern of the law, the beauty of the law, and then the essence of the law. So the, the drama, the pattern, the beauty, and then the essence of the law. And we'll pick up the drama of the law in chapter 19. It says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, this is a, a dramatic moment. I mean, why the, why the mountain, the trumpet, the, the smoke, the earthquake? And God is never dramatic just for the sake of being dramatic. He's never just trying to get people's attention. 
And this is simply who God is. And and this is simply what happens when God reveals himself. This is how creation responds to the presence of God. This shows that, that a meaningful moment is taking place, that something far greater than just, than just some words being spoken are about to happen, but rather this is a pivotal moment in the history of Israel and of all mankind. And everything sort of points beyond itself. And so the mountains, mountains are places of significance throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the word mountain appears more times in the Bible than the words cross, grace, and gospel combined. Mountains are all over the place in the scriptures. And what mountains represent are God's grandeur, his glory. They emphasize the distance between God and us. I mean, you can imagine if you've been to the top of a mountain, how hard it is to just breathe up there. It's like man wasn't meant to live on top of mountains. And yet this distance is a way of communicating God's holiness and how much higher he is above us. Mountains are also the place where covenants are made in the Old Testament and in the New There's five major covenants within the scriptures, and all five are are given and inaugurated on a mountain. The first covenant is the covenant of Adam, which takes place in the Garden of Eden, which the book of Ezekiel says is the mountain of God. The covenant of Noah, you may remember the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat, and God commits to never destroy the world again. The covenant of Abraham takes place on Mount Moriah, where God provides a substitutionary sacrifice for his son. And this is the covenant of Moses here on Mount Sinai, where God gives his law and promises his presence. Now, the fifth covenant is the new covenant, the one that we live in now, the covenant of Jesus. And it was inaugurated on Mount Zion, where Jesus was crucified. The place where Jerusalem sits is on this mountain called Zion. We just sang about it. Now, there are other symbols at play here. Thunder is associated with the power and glory of God. Lightning is associated with the purity and brilliance of God. Earthquakes are associated with judgment and the fear of God. And then the trumpet I love because there are are many different types of instruments in the Bible. And and some of them, you know, the harp sort of represents moments of of softness and, and grief and and, and quiet, and yet the trumpet is all the way on the other side of the spectrum. A trumpet in ancient times was used to, to announce the arrival of a king or, or the transition from an old king to a new one. Anytime a, a country was victorious in battle, they would get out the trumpets. And so the trumpet is this, this symbol of victory, this symbol of kingship. So all of these things are coming together in this moment on the mountain. As I said, creation is moved to to visibly and inaudibly respond to the presence of God as he descends into the space of mankind. Not surprisingly, the Israelites are terrified. At the end of chapter 20, it says that they say to Moses, like, don't make us go up there. We we can't go up the mountain. And, And it's not like Moses is, you know, like a pastor would be like, no, it's okay. Draw near to God. He's just like, that's probably a good idea. Like you guys just stay down here or else you might die. The people of Israel are aware that they need a mediator to go up on their behalf. They need one holier than they are to approach God. And so there's this drama, this 
power and the, the heaviness to this moment. And it's all because of who God is, and it's all because of the words that he's about to speak to his people. The Ten Commandments show up here in Exodus 20, spoken by the voice of God. They show up again in Deuteronomy 5. They're written by the finger of God on stone tablets. They're referenced numerous times throughout the New Testament. These words are about to shape an entire way of life for this community. And so that's the second thing, the pattern of the law. Chapter 20 starts by saying, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so we'll pause again there because before we even get into the ten laws themselves, we need to recognize that there's an order of events that's important here. Now, Cam just preached last week on this order of events, but it's so important that we remind ourselves of it over and over and over and over again because that's exactly what the Scriptures do. That salvation has taken place prior to this moment. Like God has led them out of Egypt. He has taken them out of slavery. He's, he's had these dramatic ten plagues. He's led them to the edge of the Red Sea, hidden them in the cloud, He's led them through the waters of the sea. It collapsed back on the Egyptians. They sing in freedom. Even when they can't find food and water, God provides for them. It's only after all of this that then God gives them his law. It's grace first and then law. They become the people of God before they receive the words of God. It's so significant that this is not Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. This is not where the story begins, but this is really the middle point of the book of Exodus. Remember what Moses said when he appeared to Pharaoh the very first time. Chapter 5, he said, Let my people go so that we may worship God and celebrate a festival in the wilderness. God was drawing his people out of Egypt so that he might draw them into his presence. It was a journey leading to worship and to celebration. And one of the best ways to think about this, we can often struggle as believers in our relationship to the law, our relationship to obedience and to his commandments. We might think that his law is burdensome or that the commandments are are you know, archaic, and do we really need to follow them? Do we need to follow, you know, all of them? But I think it's better to, to think of this moment like this. Imagine if you were in a country that was under siege, you know, perhaps like Ukraine right now. And, and you and your family, you've got, you've got small kids, like, you know, two and four, something like that. And they really can't do anything for themselves yet. And your city comes under siege, and there are people that are looking for you and trying to attack you and take your life. And so you sneak out, and you're on the run, and you've got your children. You've got a little bit of food with you, but you escape the city. People are after you. You kind of like lose them in the woods or wherever you're going. And then finally, you're, you're a little bit free. You find a place to settle in. Maybe it's like a cave or something like that. And you realize, like, finally, we're okay. We're not going to be attacked here. You get out your food, and then you, you begin to tell your kids, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to survive this. Here's how we're going to thrive in this situation. We've made it out. We're free, but let's remember who we are. We are not like them, but instead remember who we are, and here are some rules for our family going forward. 
Now that we are free, here's how we're going to live as a new group together. Maybe another way to think of it would be foster care and adoption. When a child enters a new family, perhaps he or she is coming out of a a, a traumatic background or a, a family system that lacks structure and lacks love. And so the child comes into this, this warm and loving new family, and yet it's gonna, there's going to be a transition for that child. It's going to take a while to unlearn the, the ways of the previous family and, and to learn the new ways that their family is establishing for them. These, these laws, they exist to uphold the relational system that they're stepping into. There might be some, some fatherly discipline in, in this new family, but it's a place of security and love. And soon enough, they realize that the structure is for their good. And so often, as I said, we've heard people say things like Christianity, it's not about rules, it's about relationship. And I say, yes, and amen, the relationship is at the center of the heart of God and of Christianity, and it is primary. And yet to be against rules is often to be against a relationship. So in a healthy family system, the rules and the rhythms exist to strengthen those relationships, to give some order and guidance to the family structure. In a healthy community, the rhythms and rules show us how to exist together, how to live in relationship together. And so these 10 laws, they form the moral code, the the ethical standard for God's family, for this new people, this new society. And then all the other laws, the, the civil and the ceremonial laws that come throughout the rest of the Old Testament, they all flow downhill from here. I mean, many of those civil or ceremonial laws are are not still in effect in the new covenant, but these 10 last for all time. And so that's why I say the most important thing is not merely that we can recite the 10 commandments, but that we understand what they're for. That we see how good and true and beautiful they are in the context of this new community. So a Bible teacher, Jen Wilkin, who has a great book, on the Ten Commandments, and she writes this, When the Ten Commandments are not forgotten, they are often wrongly perceived. They suffer from a PR problem. They're seen by many as the obsolete utterances of a thunderous, grumpy God to a disobedient people, neither of whom seem very relatable or likable. Because we have any trouble seeing beauty in the Ten Words, forgetting them comes easily. I love that she uses the word beauty. We don't often think of beauty and the law going together or of desire and obedience going together. The third point gets right at that. It's the beauty of the law. Because the law is graciously given to us. To those of us who are are safe and secure and well-fed in the family of God, after all of our needs are provided for, then God gives us a way of living. It's for our good. It's for our thriving. It's for the good of our community. And that's why the scriptures say everything that they do about God's law in general. Deuteronomy 5 says that practicing the law brings about blessing, flourishing, and long life. Psalm 119 verse 32 says the law broadens our understanding and gives us wisdom for life. Verse 50 of Psalm 119 says the law comforts us in our suffering. James 1.25 says the law gives us freedom. 
Romans 6.19 says the law leads us to righteousness and sanctification or spiritual growth. Titus 2.14 says living according to the law is a mark of being like Christ who gave himself for us to save us from lawlessness. And so the law is good and it's beautiful. But you might be asking how? How how is it so? So I want to take as an example the fourth commandment, the Sabbath law. It says this in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. And so how does this law, how does the fourth commandment promote blessing and flourishing? And the answer is that it protects us. It protects us from overworking to the point of burnout. It protects us from finding our identities only in our work. If you work seven days a week without rest, week after week after week, you'll begin to experience disintegration in your relationships, disintegration in your physical health, disintegration emotionally. You will begin to fall apart, apart from the Sabbath. Imagine being part of a community where everybody is tired, anxious, unable to care for one another because they are just working without ceasing. Rather, the law promotes blessing and flourishing. We might also ask, how does it broaden our understanding? How does the law give us wisdom? And again, the Sabbath shows us something true of God, that he created the world in six days and then he rested on the seventh And in fact, he's still living in a perpetual state of rest. Once he created and he said that it was good, he was satisfied and content and he has been resting. It doesn't mean he's he's uninvolved. It doesn't mean that he's distant, but rather he is so happy with his creation. He is so sure of his plan that is unfolding that he is no longer working in the same way. Imagine the difference between working for a a boss that is stressed out and anxious all of the time. They're pacing around the office. They're always sweating and stressed. And then imagine going to work for a boss who is calm and content, well-balanced, how much better it would be in that second situation. So the law broadens our understanding and gives us wisdom. But third, we can also ask, how does it give us freedom? How does the law make us more like Christ? And in this example, Sabbath is a reminder of who we are. That we have been made by God, that we belong to God, that we exist for God. It also reminds us of who we are not. We are not God. We are his creatures. He has made us. We are needy creatures. We need rest. We need relationship. We need food and water. We need March Madness. We need competitive cycling. We need whatever it is that you're into on the Sabbath. Maybe it's like poetry and Tchaikovsky, and that's great. We need rest. We need God. We need one another. And Sabbath reorients us in such a healthy way that if we're enslaved to our work, it's probably because we're on a deeper level enslaved to some kind of image of ourselves. Being competent, successful, in control, moving ahead in the world. 
Sabbath helps us reorient. Jesus practiced Sabbath, Christ-likeness must include these healthy rhythms of work and rest. It's when we see the beauty of the law that we learn to actually delight in the law. When we see it as, as good and true, good and true for us individually, good for the whole society, that we actually begin to take delight in the law itself. Especially when we become new believers or if somebody's just exploring Christianity, there's going to be some laws within Christianity that will appeal to you. Uh, the laws about doing good by others, of, of social justice, of caring for the poor and needy. You might be all about those, and yet you might not understand or actively dislike the other laws on, on sexual ethics or, or whatever it is. And yet by actually trusting the law, understanding that this comes from the heart of God, that this is an interconnected and cohesive way of being in the world, do we, do we trust that the whole law is good? Rather than just picking and choosing the ones that we like, and everybody sort of picks different ones that they like and ones that they don't want to follow, God invites us to see the goodness of the law and to take delight in all of it. In Psalm 40, David says, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. In Psalm 119, verse 20, it says, My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. I mean, how do we get there? How do we get to the point where we can honestly say, My soul is consumed with longing for the law of God? Like, that's maybe some next level spiritual formation but it's the pattern for us. There actually is a way to get there. And so we've looked at the drama, the pattern, and the beauty of the law, but we've only been talking about the law in a fairly general sense. So the last thing is the essence of the law. In verse 3 it says, The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make an image for yourself, an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. These opening laws, they're all about worship. It creates this seamless vision for life as it should be, but it begins with worship, with wholehearted, single-minded worship. For Israel, this meant not allowing any other gods in their community. The, the gods of Egypt or the gods of the, the Canaanites or the Philistines will see that in their history as they move on from here. But it also means so much more than that. You know, all the Ten Commandments, they're, they're given to us in a negative form. Don't do this or don't do that. And another way to better understand them is to take them and put them in a, in a positive form. So you shall not murder becomes live at peace with one another, forgive one another. In fact, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. In Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus is essentially restating the Ten Commandments in positive forms. He's, he's applying and deepening the Ten Commandments to our lives. And then actually the book of James is just a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. So it's all flowing downhill from the Ten Commandments. So what's the positive form of no other gods before me? It actually comes in Deuteronomy 6. It says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus says in Luke 10 that this is the single most important commandment. 
love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with the entirety of your being, love the Lord. Don't put anything before him. Don't put anything beside him, like on the throne of your heart. Don't let anything else even into the throne room. But love God with every aspect of your being. It's wholehearted worship. The first commandment's about reordering our loves. The old uh, theologian, 5th century African theologian, St. Augustine, he's famous for saying that all sin is disordered love. It's not necessarily that we love the wrong things, but we love them to the wrong degree and in the wrong order. So it's not wrong to love your, your family or your friends or even your work, but if you love things more than God or even close to as much as God, that's disordered love. Everything should be beneath our love for God because we were created for God himself and everything else will, will treat us poorly. If you love something more than God, it will, it will let you down. It will be taken from you. And if you're wondering, well, how do I know if my love for something is disordered? One of the ways that God shows us is in moments of trial and suffering. We talked about it two weeks ago when Israel finds themselves in the wilderness. They find themselves without the things that have given them security in the past. Without knowing where their next meal is coming from, the wilderness is the place where God strips away the external things so that we can see him, so that we can see that he's all we need. In the same way, our disordered love is often the external things, our, our work or our reputation or whatever it is. When we love those things too much, often God can put his finger on that thing, can, can threaten it or, or take it for a season. And it's often the most gracious thing possible. The Ten Commandments invite us to reorder our love. See, every other good thing, friendship, marriage, children, health, good work, these are all reflections of God. They're all things that, that flow downhill from God himself. And so if we're pursuing his gifts, we should recognize that they're meant to lead us back to the giver. The Ten Commandments teach us to go not to the blessings of life, but to the source of blessings, to seek his face, not just his gifts. Seek the face of God. We must lower our love of comfort and control and security and power. And we must elevate our view of God himself. My favorite quote on worship comes from Eugene Peterson. He says, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. In worship, we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. We clear out everything else and focus on this one thing, the presence of God. It's what David was trying to get his heart moved towards in Psalm 27 when he says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, gaze upon his beauty, and seek him in all his temple. This sort of one thing, wholehearted worship is what I want for my life, but more than anything, it's what I want for us as a congregation. May we be a people that are not caught up in all the, the trappings of modern life, of success and easy circumstances. 
May we not be content with popularity in the world and barely a relationship with the living God. May we not be satisfied with being like a a fun and a, a cool or hip church. May we not be satisfied, even if we have all the things of heaven, but God himself is not there. Instead, we want to be like Moses, willing to to approach God, willing to, to stand in that scary space in front of the presence of God, willing even to, to talk back to God in the sense that Moses does in Exodus, where he says, Lord, you can send your angel ahead of us, but, but that's not enough. We need you. What is the point of anything if you are not personally present to us? Moses talks back to God because he knows the heart of God and that that's exactly what God is wanting. And so may we be like Moses. May we have that posture, that level of boldness and of humility that no amount of, of salvation or, or growth or peace or flourishing is any good of all at all if it doesn't include the personal presence of God. And so how do we, how do we get this wholehearted worship is it, is it through obedience to the law? No, not at all. Even though Israel promised to follow all of God's laws, I, I always think of the Jesus storybook Bible here because it says the Israelites promised to follow God's law. And then the author says, but I'm afraid they couldn't. I'm afraid they never did. See, they failed miserably. And even though we live on this side of the cross and are filled with the Holy Spirit, we fail the law every single day. I mean, if the essence and the priority of the law is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, like we don't go a moment without breaking the law. But right here at the foot of Mount Sinai, there's a preview of all that was to come. The law is this righteous standard that we couldn't possibly live up to. Moses couldn't live up to it. I mean, King David with his desire for one thing, worship, I mean, that only lasted so long. This whole episode, like everything else in Exodus, is pointing to something beyond itself. This old covenant points to a coming new covenant, which is sealed not by our obedience, but by the obedience of Jesus. And this mountain called Sinai emphasized God's distance from us, but the mountain called Zion, where Jesus was crucified, It emphasizes God's nearness to us. There was an earthquake that accompanied the presence of God in our scene here, but there was also an earthquake as Jesus breathed his last on the cross. At Sinai, God is saying, be careful. You can't come too close. You can lose your life. But at the cross, God says, come close. You can draw near because Jesus gave his life. At Sinai, God says, no one can see me and live. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And I've seen like entire chapters where theologians have written on the Sermon on the Mount saying, we don't know if we're really going to see God. And I'm like, man, I'm going with Jesus on this one. We will see God. We will walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day like Adam and Eve. We will meet with God face to face as a best friend the way Moses did. He says we will see God. 
And in that moment, all of our divided worship, all of our disordered love will be transformed in an instant at, at the sound of the trumpet. Our worship will finally be pure and passionate and constant. We will finally be satisfied. Our hearts will finally be at rest. And if that is our promised future, this wholehearted worship in step with the good and gracious law of God, if that's our our forever eternity, then why not pursue it here and now? Let's pray.